Well, I want to direct your attention this evening back to this passage that we just read. This glorious doxological hymn of praise from David, Psalm 103. I want you to consider its value to us today. But sometimes we think things like this may not be relevant in our day and age. One of the most common things I hear, the common majors that I hear students today take at university and college is a major in psychology. Over the last decade, according to the American National Center for Educational Statistics, there's been a 15% increase in the number of students that seek out a psychology major degree. We might ask ourselves, why? What is the major fascination with psychology, particularly now in the modern era? I believe that part of it is the growth of secularism in our culture, and frankly, even in our churches. More and more, we are hearing psychology displacing the Bible as a source of understanding human nature. It's not just happening in the media, it's happening in the church. A few years ago, after our Good Friday service, I was a bit shocked when a student in one of the few evangelical um, seminaries, and he was in an evangelical church in the city, came up to me afterwards to thank me. It was not the traditional way of thanking me. He said, thank you for preaching a message based on the Bible. He said, most of the time I hear psychological messages from the pulpit. Increasingly, we see a church that is influenced by secular culture and psychology. You see the the kind of books that are popular in the Christian bookstores. To be honest, in Toronto, the two Christian bookstores that are there, that remain, there aren't many Christian books that are there. There are many that are based in psychology. It's almost indistinguishable, in fact. Maybe a few Bible texts sprinkled like salt. Increasingly, we see a church influenced by secular-based psychology and theories. And this should concern us as Christians because the fundamental presuppositions of psychology are secular, evolutionary often, and not biblical. Pop psychology is replacing the exposition of God's word in the pulpits of our cities and our countries. And as someone has said, Consumerism appeals to greed. Pop psychology appeals to need. Instead of letting the Bible determine what soul food we actually need, churches use psychological questionnaires to pull the congregation to find out what, as if you know what you need. Is that so bad? What's actually wrong with pulling the congregation to find out what the needs are? Well, I think this should concern us as Christians because the fundamental beliefs of psychology are the result of man's wisdom and not God's. We come to church to hear God's wisdom. Thus, we must carefully examine the presuppositions before we apply the conclusions that they provide to our lives. And I want to say this, not all psychology is wrong, but its worldview is entirely naturalistic. It does not incorporate the supernatural which Christianity most certainly does. And so since it can only see half of the world as it truly is, its ability to help is therefore limited. It is the word of God which has the ultimate power to operate on the mind and the soul. 
of an individual. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now we get this word psychology. Its origin is actually from the so-called study of the soul, the psyche. Now originally psychology was a subdivision of philosophy. And ultimately it was derived out of what used to be called the queen of the liberal arts. Do you know what that was? Theology. Psychology as a separate discipline didn't emerge in Germany and America until 1879 when Wilhelm Wundt founded the first laboratory dedicated exclusively to psychological research in Leipzig, Germany. Now, psychology and its study had existed in pagan Greek and Egyptian, and even to a certain extent in Islamic cultures in the Middle Ages and centuries before. But if you think about it, the arrival of psychology is relatively late in scientific history. And the question is, why is that? Well, I think that we understand the context of its arrival on the basis of the arrival of Charles Darwin's evolutionary theory in the 19th century. For the first time, we saw the Bible being displaced by, as the queen of the liberal arts. And it is when the Bible is rejected that men turn to other solutions. In Toronto, where I am, the University of Toronto, when it was founded in 1827, didn't have a psychology department until 100 years later, in 1927. And as far as I can tell in the Caribbean, they didn't even have a scholarly journal in psychology until 2004, with the birth of the Caribbean Journal of Psychology at UE Mona. The reality is that before there was psychological counseling, there was biblical counseling and instruction in the Word of God. People were under the authority and the Word of God. And the Bible speaks to the condition of the human soul and directly. And specifically, we see, as we open up our scriptures tonight, the book of Psalms, the Psalter as we sometimes call it, stands as an inspired example of biblical psychology. It contains the prayers, the thoughts, the meditations, and communications of godly men like King David, who here has written Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is an interesting psalm. It's distinguished by the fact that it contains no petitions. It contains no cries for help. It is a psalm of pure meditation. Pure reflection, pure praise. Can't think of a better way to end out the Lord's day. It is a poetic ode, or more precisely, a hymn. A hymn, which is the product of meditating on God's character and work. And as such, it is meant to address the very basic needs of the Christian soul. One of our very basic tendencies is to do as we just sang. I love that hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is our problem. 
And we need a biblical solution. We were created for one purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And when we lose sight of that purpose, and it's easy to do so when we're under stress or we're in pain, it's hard to glorify or to enjoy anything. Psalm 103 is written to to remind us of our life priorities. It reminds us of the gospel of grace, which governs and ought to direct our lives. For me, it's one of the passages that I go to in the Bible to preach the gospel to myself. Some of you may not know, but oftentimes the hardest day of the week for the pastor is Mondays. This is my Blue Monday song. This is what I go to. This is how I speak to my heart. I call it my Blue Monday song. And this is when I need the gospel most. And I want to encourage you that this can be your song. This can be a comfort and an encouragement. Psalm 103, David models for us how we are to approach and think about the God of grace. In doing so, we see that David talking to himself and really preaching the gospel to himself. It's like he's training his heart and his mind. You almost see him doing the meditation. You almost see the sweat of it when he's discouraged or depressed. It literally refocuses him on God and his wonders. And that's what I want to do with you tonight. We're going to examine this psalm, the whole psalm, under four headings this evening. First, we're going to see in the first six verses, blessing God. Then in verses 6 to 14, we're going to remember God's character. And then in verses 15 to 19, we're going to remember our weakness. And finally, we're going to end in a doxology of blessing and praise. Well, let's dive in, shall we? In verses 1 to 5, this theme of blessing God. Now, do you ever wonder why people say, God bless you? When people sneeze, even if they're not Christians, you ever wondered that? The actual origin of that phrase is somewhat under dispute. But one of the opinions is that ancient people believed that the sneeze was so violent, if it was so violent, it could actually take out your soul. Okay? My children laugh at how loud I sneeze. And people would say it reflexively. They would say, God bless you. But do you know what it means? Do you know what it really means to bless someone? And and why does the psalmist here, of all things, say, bless the Lord? Don't we expect God to bless us? Why does he say, bless the Lord here? What does it mean to bless God? The NIV translates this as praise, but that's not actually sufficient. The ESV has done a better job of translating this. It's not sufficient because blessing is the opposite of curse. What it means is to delight, to affirm, to seek the best for them. And so when we come here, we think, what would most bless God? It's weird to think about that. Have you ever thought about that? What would most bless God? God doesn't need anything to us. He's immutable, passable, all of those things. We know that God blesses us, but it's strange to think that we should bless God. But here's the reality. God has tied himself to us. 
We're in a relationship. And we can, and indeed we should, bless Him. How? How do we bless Him? Well, I want to suggest to you, very simply, we bless God by taking our joy in Him. Look at how he says that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, or as the old translation is, all my inmost being. Bless the Lord by giving ourselves entirely over to Him. Not just a a list of God's characteristics. What we see here is the Apostle, or sorry, I want to say the Apostle David. What we see here is the psalmist, David, taking great delight, enormous delight in God. A real delighting. This is a conscious decision that he makes. But who is this call to bless the Lord addressed to? He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, my soul. David here is making a proactive application of biblical meditation. In Psalm 1, we heard earlier, and 2, in Psalm 119, we see biblical meditation and courage. And here we see an application of it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, my father's old preacher, used to say, we need to spend more time talking to our heart rather than listening to our heart. David here is rousing himself out of gloom and depression and using his mind and memory to kindle his emotions. He kindles his emotions. He doesn't allow his emotions to kindle his mind. We are not controlled, brothers and sisters, no matter what you hear, by our emotions. We are to direct them with our mind. And this is not just evident here, it's evident throughout Scripture. In Psalm 42, verse 5, we see the mind being addressed again by David. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. We also direct our emotions by our memory. Deuteronomy Chapter 8, verse 11 to 14 says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So we direct our emotions by directing our thinking, by remembering God's goodness and blessing. And look at how we are helped by this. What does David say? Bless the Lord, O my soul. When you see L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, capitalized like that in the ESV, you are seeing the covenant name. He is calling him Yahweh, Yahweh. And that is not just a name. It has a whole uh, history involved in it. It is Yahweh who created the world. It is Yahweh who made covenant promises to the patriarchs. It is Yahweh who delivered Israel out of the hands of Egypt, 
took them across the Red Sea and indeed gave them the law on Mount Sinai. So we have to understand that this use of this name is meant to evoke all of that history. Bless the Lord, Yahweh, your deliverer, your savior, the one who has helped you all the way through in this situation. And here he does want us to remember specifically what Yahweh has done. This is all the covenant keeping God has done. Bless the Lord, O my soul, verse 2, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What a litany of things our God has done. What a wonderful God we serve. Look at what He does, verse 3. This is... Primarily what God does, He forgives all your iniquity. The emphasis here in verse 3 is the removal of guilt. All your iniquities, not some of your sins. God came into the world to save men. He came to save them from all of their sin. This removes the legal legal guilt that we have. In other words, when He says, forgives all your iniquities... He's speaking of justification. That's ultimately what was happening. And we believe that the Old Testament believers were justified by faith. As we see in in Romans, Paul explains that Abraham was just believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so David understood this concept, who forgives all your iniquity. We are justified. Our guilt is removed. And this is the basic fact of our salvation. But he doesn't leave leave it there. He says, who heals all your diseases. Now this could be interpreted a couple of different ways. Possibly be interpreted as, as physical healing. But when we see it being paired here with forgiveness, it's more much more likely meaning has to be dealing with healing from the disease of sin. This is what it means to be sanctified. To be cleansed from the effects of sin and given a new heart that desires to serve God. So he's saying we've been justified. We've been sanctified. And look what he says there in verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. When he says redeems you from the pit, this is a frequent synonym in the scriptures for the grave. It's not just forgiveness. This is resurrection under, unto eternal life. This is the God who promises to raise you forever. Forgive you and raise you from death to life. And then he says he'll crown you with steadfast love and mercy. And if you remember from my last trip here. Yes, I hear it. That word. You got to spit it out. Chesed. That's the word here. Chesed. That's the word that's translated as steadfast love and mercy. This is the beautiful, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever covenant of love that God has extended to His people. This is the kind of love that a father ought to have for a family. It crowns you. It's that, that kind of language here that gives status. We now know that we are His family. We are crown princes and princesses. We're sons and daughters of the king. 
And how does that happen? Well, it happens because God not only justifies us, He not only sanctifies us, He not only gives us eternal life, but He adopts us. He brings us into His family. Do you see why this is such an encouraging passage, brothers and sisters? Because it contains tremendous doctrine, and we're just here in the first few verses. And there's this this personal element throughout this whole passage as he addresses God. He says, you and your. This is a personal God working alongside us in our struggles. God is our Father. And we have the privilege. All of this gives us a right understanding. It's, It's a solid platform on which to look at the world. To get a a 360 degree, a full view of the situation. When the President of the United States faces a major crisis, he goes into something called the Situation Room. And the purpose of the Situation Room is to help him to gain perspective on what is going on. To get all of the advice and all of the, the help and all of the visuals that are needed to make the right decision in order to resolve the crisis. When you have good intelligence, you can make good decisions. Same is true for the Christian. Some of the time, we are depressed and discouraged, and we make poor decisions. We need to reorientate ourselves. We need to ground ourselves in the truth. You would do well to memorize this psalm. To take time to memorize these verses, to remember all that God is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His his benefits. These benefits remind us of our true state. When we are justified, we are free from the past, from our past lives of sin. When we're sanctified, God is at work in us in the present. He heals us from the disease of sin. When we understand eternal life and the joy of resurrection, there's no fear of death. The Bible says later, why do we fear man? What can man do to you? You Destroy your body. Fear the Lord. You can destroy body and soul. But more than that, we don't even need to worry about having others and their approval. Adoption means that we have been brought into God's family and it doesn't matter. This is what one commentator has said as he looked at these first five verses. He's called this the experience of the Christian faith. This is what it feels like to be saved, to be justified, to be sanctified, to have the assurance of eternal life, to know that you've been adopted into God's family. That's that's the experience of the Christian faith. That's what it feels like to be saved. And this is what we must come back to, brothers and sisters. Continually, we must remind us, this is a biblical psychology. It is food for the soul. The concluding verse of this opening doxology conveys the benefit of this meditation. In verse 5, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The image of God renewing is that of a buoyant, a tireless strength that is available to us no matter what our age is or what our physical condition. And this is reminiscent of 
the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 30 and 31. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Sweet Pastor John and I, we enjoyed, and, and Kamar and Jonathan, we enjoyed our time. But brothers and sisters, I was exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And like I said, this, this applies to us no matter what your current physical condition is. Some of you struggle with your physical and your emotional condition. Some of you are feeling the challenges of getting older. I know I am. And I'm not that old. Often, uh, my father is 82 years old, and he's a faithful servant of the Lord, still ministering, still preaching when he can. And I always seek to encourage him. The Bible believes there is much to come in old age. The world today throws it aside. If you're not in the 18 to 44 category, the world's not interested in you anymore. I turned 45 this year, so they're not interested in me. But I quote what the Bible says. In Psalm 92, verse 14, I say this to my father all the time. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is good. That is our joy. That's what we're called to do. And when we reflect on this, when we rejoice in this, meditation renews us. Because it strengthens us in our weakness. It reminds us, yeah, you're weak, but God is not. God is mighty. God is mighty to save. God is mighty to sanctify. God is mighty to raise you from the dead. And God is mighty to bring you into His family. Even when we don't feel like it, this is the sweet medicine we need to help us face the day and stay spiritually awake and ready to face the world. Let me ask you tonight, do you know these truths? Is that your confession this evening? Do you know the justification and the grace of God? If you do, doesn't it thrill your soul? This is good news. This is good news. All your sins, past and present, have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Do you believe this, CRBC? Amen. He goes on in this passage. It's not just this wonderful opening doxology. It continues. In verses 6 to 14, he remembers God's character. Progresses further. It deepens the depth of our understanding of exactly who God is. We explore his character here. Despite the sins of his family, God is a faithful father. He works righteousness for the oppressed. The background to this section is identified by verse 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed, in steadfast love. I hope you love that word, steadfast love, chesed. This, this verse here in uh, verse 8 is reminding us of a previous passage in Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. Turn there. I'm going to read to you from verses 4 to 9. This is a quote. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. What's the context? What's the context? This is after 
uh, Moses has come down the mountain and he's seen the golden calf. And in his anger, he dashes them to the, to the ground and all Israel is under the guilt of their sin. Here we see afterwards. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud, the glory of the glory cloud, and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness, keeping chesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. That's the context. That's what we're meant to think of when we see this verse 8 here. The gracious nature of God. He had every right to destroy the Israelites after. I mean, have you ever thought about how quickly they turned to sin? After seeing the ten plagues and after seeing the Red Sea flung apart and going all the way and then they're there on, on Mount Sinai and see the rumbling of the fire and they don't even want to go close to the mountain. They say, Moses, you go. You go up there. Forty days later, he comes down and they're pursuing idolatry. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It's not just the Israelites, is it? You can come to church. You can sing your heart out. And you go home and you're alone with yourself. And what do you do? What do you do? Hopefully, we remember these things. But sadly, we don't always. Let's not be self-righteous, brothers and sisters. We can fall very quickly, as the Israelites did. But the hope here, and the grace, is that God's anger here is temporary. Verse 9, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Isn't that interesting? There's a contrast here. It provides, as Paul says later, his love never ends. But his anger is temporary. He will not chide forever. How does that compare with your anger, by the way? Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Good question to ask yourself is, why are you angry? you actually have a right to be? God is the perfect expression of anger. God, anger is one of God's communicable attributes. But look at how it's limited here. It will not remain angry forever. And then I think one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible comes next. Oh, memorize this one. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What a tremendous passage. What a tremendous verse. It's grace. We do not get what we deserve. But you might be saying, well, wait a second, Pastor Chris. You just read from Exodus chapter 34. And in verse 7 it says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions for sin, but who will by no means... 
clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children of the third and fourth generation. How do we understand that? Well, ultimately, we understand that. And we can only understand that verse in the context of the gospel itself. Jesus paid it all. He bore our guilt so that we could be forgiven and bear it no more. That, this is what he's saying. God is just. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. The thrifold description. But he will not repay us according to what we actually owe him. Instead, if we believe in him, he will save us from our sins. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Remember propitiation? Turning away the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. To show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful. And when something's beautiful, you want to dwell on it. So David does here. He paints three beautiful paintings of this covenant, this chesed love. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his his chesed, his steadfast love towards those who fear him. I think I'm creating new words. Chesed, love towards those who fear him. God's love is a particular love. It's a particular love. Particular redemption we were speaking about this morning. It is a love for those who fear Him. The love is not extended to those who do not fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and keep His commandments. Would you say that you're a God-fearing man or woman this evening? If you are, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love. We were flying home from Antigua. We were flying and, and we were looking out, I was looking out the window with Kumar and we saw this, this, this floor beneath us and it looked like it was this, this flat floor, but it was the clouds. We were above the clouds and we looked up and it just, the sky appeared limitless. I have no idea when we passed into the ionosphere and beyond into outer space, but at that moment it just is, it appeared as if there was an eternity, an infiniteness. That's the picture that he says here. You know, from the ground, the sky appears limitless. That's a picture of God's, the greatness of God's chesed love. And then, another one of my favorite verses, verse 12. The second picture, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You might feel tonight that you have the stain of sin. That there is no way that you can remove the stain of sin from your life. But here, here the scriptures contradict you. As far as the east is from the west, so far 
does he remove our transgressions from us. I honestly think you could not come up with a greater metaphor for sanctification. There is nothing more separate than the very corners of the world, the known world. And by definition, sin cannot condemn us if it's separated from us to this extent. The third beautiful portrait of his love is conveyed, his covenant love in verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fears him. As extreme width and height are used as illustrations, so is the deep godly love of a father to communicate God's chesed love. I cannot tell you what it is if you have not had children to know a deep love for your children. And even our human love does not compare in any stretch of the imagination to God, the perfect God's love for us. It is just a shadow of that. But when you have children, it changes you. It changes what you are living for. It terrifies you. And it delights you. And it changes your priorities forever. And here he uses the deep godly love of a father to communicate his covenant love for us. Fathers, as we see our children grow, get some sense of the hearts of their children. But they love them anyway. My son Noah, he's now 10, but when he was little... He used to come up to me with just a delighted look in his eyes. Daddy! Daddy! And, you know, just a beautific, angelic smile. But I noticed that this happened when I stood in front of the fridge. I couldn't figure out exactly why. But what he would do is he'd come and I'd be like, Noah, my Noah. And I'd pick him up and bring him in my arms. And he would start inching up over my shoulder to see where the candy was kept on the top of the refrigerator. Because that's where all the contraband was. But let me just tell you this. When my little Noah came to me and said, Daddy, I didn't say, I know what you're doing. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Of course, I picked him up and I showed him. I didn't let him have it, but I showed him. Because I love him. Because I love him. I know his heart. I know what he's after. I know, honestly, it's probably not so much about me, and it's more about the candy. It's a little bit about me, a lot more about the candy. But I love him. But I love him. But I love him. Our Father loves us. He knows that we come to him with mixed motives. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are sinners. But he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. So I look at my children. Sometimes it breaks my heart. Children are getting older. They're becoming wiser at sinning. Val and I often spend time discussing how we can alert our children to their sin problems in a way that is compassionate and yet serious. And I honestly, I imagine in some way the triune God acting 
as He directs providence, bringing good out of evil, but still pursuing, loving, overseeing, and gathering up us up in His arms. This is a God who loves us despite our sins and our faults. This is the God of grace. Some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis, wrote a book on the Psalms. Don't buy it. Don't read it. It's horrible. Do you know why? Because he sees the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament as a God of grace. But if you look at this Psalm, brothers and sisters, we see that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God, a God of grace. He is a God who holds us accountable, a God of wrath, yes. A God who will indeed visit the sins of the fathers. But a God of grace who ultimately in Christ Jesus forgives us our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. God's character is consistent. He's not schizophrenic in the Old Testament. Angry and loving in the New Testament. No. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you know Him, He loves you. He removes your sin. He's a loving Father. And here we are called to bless God. To bless God. And we can. Because that's His character. He is worthy of our blessing. Even as He remembers God's character in verses uh, that we've just looked at, we also see that our God knows us. He remembers man's weakness. By contrast, we're nothing. Verse 14, For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. We're temporary. James calls us, our life is like a vapor, a mist, and it is gone. It's interesting, I was talking to somebody recently and I was saying, do you know the name of your great-grandfather? How many of you can name both of your great-grandparents on both sides? And how about them, their great-great-grandparents? Gets hard, doesn't it? Gets really hard. We pass away. Pass into memory. You don't even know what they did. You might be able to name their names. But what did they do? What were they known for? What were they like? Our lives are vapors. You will not be remembered. You will be forgotten. That is the way of humanity. Our days are like grass. And we're gone. Grass here would last for a day. Literally, sometimes in the desert. Here. But the contrast here is this, that Hesed love is from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 17. For those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. This is God's scope. Salvation and covenant that He made. He purposed before all time in the covenant of redemption. Before the universe was created. That's God's scope. We think of things in terms of years and maybe decades. He thinks of it in the scope of all time. And it will come into fruition 
in Jesus Christ later on. This love, though, was extended to a specific people, to those, verse 18, who keep His covenant and remember to do what He commands. Here's the reality. You can't just listen to the wonder, to the beauty of this gospel and not react to it. You can't just sit there like a bump on the law. You must be responsive to this love. It is the word of God and it must be obeyed. 1 John 2 verse 3 and it says, And by this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Jesus said, If you love Me, keep My commandments. God isn't messing around. He's a gracious God, a loving God. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. He resurrects us. He adopts us. But He's also the King. The King. The Lord, verse 19, has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. He's the King. And we must accept His rule. You can't say that you're a Christian and not accept the rule of God. Because here's the reality. If we don't accept His rule, we will be judged by Him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Let me ask you tonight, have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? What are you waiting for? Do you not see Him as we presented to you tonight? Is the Gospel not crystal clear in His goodness and in His grace? Come to Him now. Don't wait or delay. Come to Jesus Christ. He is a gracious God. And He is happy to receive you. He justifies you. He sanctifies you. He raises you from the dead. Then He brings you into His family. And you have eternal fellowship with Him for all time. We conclude our look at this by looking at this final doxology of blessing. What we began as individual benefits now becomes corporate. Here we see David, including all of heaven and earth in his cry of worship. We have four doxologies here. One for the angels, one for the mighty ones, one for the hosts and ministers. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see, when we have grasped the fullness of who God is, it grips us. And we want to praise Him. We want to bless Him for what He has done in His extension of grace to us. And when we rejoice inwardly, we join the symphony of praise that echoes throughout all creation. Buddhist philosophy seeks to transcend nature in order to live in harmony with it. Well, let me tell you, Christianity in God reconciles us to God and sings in harmony with us 
We can live in harmony with creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. All creation declares the glory of God. And when we meditate on the nature of God and His attributes and His gifts and His blessings, when we forget not His benefits, our voices, our souls join creation in giving the praise to the God who redeems our lives from the pits. This is the joy that happens when we meditate on the Scriptures. We're talking earlier, Pastor John was in the law section, about how we often fail to meditate on the Word of God. We think, well, it's not a big deal. In the Scriptures, it's not a sin not to read the Bible, isn't it? Isn't it? Blessed is the man who meditates. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. If you want to flourish, if you want to grow, we're called to bless the Lord. How will you do that? By reading His Scriptures, by meditating on them, and by joining the symphony of praise. All creation brings glory to God. Do you bring glory to God? Have you brought glory to God in your life? Do you actually know who God is? Are you bored? Then you have not understood. This is thrilling good news. God has come down. God has extended His grace to us. You need to understand what happens to us when we don't understand when we don't preach this gospel to ourselves. If we're Christians, one of the reasons why Christians get depressed too, and we do, we get depressed for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's medically related. But sometimes we just...